This is a Radio.com original. This is the Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And, of course, we're going to be talking for the next uh, however long it takes, <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> Which could be quite a while because mm-hmm. we're asking today, are we back to where we started? California largely rolling back its reopenings, shutting down indoor dining, bars, indoor gyms, church activity. Other states where infection rates are high are closing things up, too. So will shutdowns work a second time? Scientists and doctors have learned so much about this virus in a short period of time. We'll hear from one who will share with us how the battle is going. Disney World's open again despite a record amount of cases in Florida. We'll hear from a reporter who was there over the weekend. And there's a heartbreaking story out of Arizona concerning schools. A teacher leading remote summer school classes with two colleagues dies from the virus. Does this change how school districts consider reopening campuses. This year's college grads might be facing the most uncertain future of any graduating class in a long time. So how do they get started on their careers with so much uncertainty? Let's get back to the new round of shutdowns. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo is chair of epidemiology and biostatistics at UC San Francisco. Doctor, did California and other states open, you know, too fast? Yeah, I think, um, so first of all, let me just say that we're still evolving what we learn about the virus. And I think that um, probably if I had to do things differently on Monday morning quarterback, I would have, again, yes, we should have all masked and we should have done it as a state. We should have never let there be any exceptions on that. We know there'll be variability across individuals, but I think across counties and states, we have to be consistent. But the thing I think we might have done differently and now know more about the virus is that we probably should have paid more attention to the indoor environments and then the outdoor environments, things like beaches and and outdoor parks and things like that are probably safer on average as long as they're not crowds. But the indoor environments, the bars, the restaurants, They're risky because the virus likes to stay in the air indoors. And those activities are ones where you take your mask off to eat. And so you're more at risk. So doesn't that actually mean that until such time when, if there's a vaccine that's effective, you really have to keep those kinds of places, bars, indoor dining closed? Because otherwise, once you start start it up again, at some point, it's going to come back again. Yeah, I think I think um, I think that you might be right. Um, We don't quite know. Here's the here's the problem right now. Right now, what we're seeing is transmission is going up at such a rate that we're reaching that phase of viral thing that we you know the exponential growth that we always fear with viral transmission. And so that means now when you go into a restaurant or even when you go outside, you're more likely to encounter someone who might be infected because there's just more transmission going on right now. That's why it's important to take a hard stop and really get back inside, make sure the virus has no place to go. And so there will be fewer of us who are actually have the virus and are transmitting it. And then we can start to again, think about how do we reopen? I think we'll be reopening things that people can stay distanced and are ventilated earlier And then some of the things like you suggest, like closed indoor environments where the mask is off, will probably be the last things to reopen. So if a certain number of people got, you know, bored with quarantine after Memorial Day, 
and then started yeah. going out. And then another group got bored after the 4th of July and started going out. A big rollback now of the openings. The back and forth. Do you start to lose more people because they get angry about closures, or does it wake them up? And what you think happens and what you hope happens, I guess, can be two different things when answering that. Yeah, I, I think you're you're right. I mean, let's be frank. We're all really tired of this. We're tired of talking about masks. We're tired of talking about coronavirus. Um, and I think the idea of going back inside, you know, it's it's um, there's a lot of fatigue when thinking about this. But I, I hope it's a wake-up call. And to me, some of the discussions about school, I think we all wished we were at a point where we had flattened the curve, we had slowly, slowly reopened so that we could think about more reopening and weren't worried about schools uh, for the fall. But I think it's a real wake-up call to think that something we did so well in March, now in July, we have parts of our state that really are probably as bad as some of the states that are worst off right now. And I think we have to get to the point where we say, yeah, let's hunker down and then let's open much more slowly so that we can really do all the things that we need to do. And in this case, I think also we have to be worried about uh, finding a, a way that we can control community transmission enough that we can do things like essential things like schools reopening. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, Chair of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, University of California, San Francisco. Lots of questions are still being asked about this virus since it's so new. What is the evidence that the coronavirus can linger in the air? Does the ventilation in a room affect transmission? And what are the safest and least safe ways to reopen schools? Dr. Chris Johnson, Associate Professor at the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Temple University, answered some of these questions with KYW's Carol McKenzie. I do agree with the scientists that the World Health Organization should update their recommendation for aerosol precautions because whether we know that it's spread through the air or not, and even though we have a significant amount of evidence, it's always best to take the most preventative, most cautious uh, route of preventing disease. And so if we go ahead and act like it is spread by aerosols, and it happens to not be, then all we've done is prevent a lot more cases than we would have before. But if we do that the other way around and just follow the current World Health Organization policy, we're at risk for seeing this pandemic continue to accelerate as it has over the past few months. Why is there now a belief, or or I guess why are scientists now leaning toward the possibility that this may be uh, aerosolized or spread through the air like this? So in epidemiology, we have what are called natural experiments, and that's whenever it's not ethical to expose people to things like a virus, but we just kind of see how things are distributed and how people get infected. So in a lot of what we call super spreader events, so when people spread disease to 5, 10 plus people, that's a super spreader event. A lot of those, whenever they're analyzed, people can't, people outside of that 6, 8, 10-foot radius around people who are singing or talking are getting infected. And the common thread in most of those super spreader events are that they are in either cramped quarters or in rooms that don't have good ventilation. And so that's where the aerosol theory really holds a lot of clout because the longer that, for example, in that choir practice where a person spread disease to 52 different people, 
the longer that person was there, the more, and they were singing, the more viral particles were in the atmosphere and other people were moving around in that air that that person had been in. And so that really lends a lot of credibility to the aerosol theory. Do we know then at this point, if, if it is aerosolized, because in the beginning they thought it was larger droplets that fell to the ground rather quickly. Um, and, and so now they're saying, I guess these are smaller droplets, right? So they can spread further. Is, is that, the, is that the, the belief here? Well, it's not only that they can spread further, which, yes, is true, but also that they're so tiny that they can linger in the air for a while. So we've kind of seen a progression in what we've learned about how these viral particles can linger in the air. Because initially we thought it was just droplet. And then there was a new study that came out after that one that said um, that those viral particles could linger in the air for 8 to 15 minutes, which is not great, but, you know, we could deal with that. Well, now it's looking like it can linger in the air for hours, which is something that measles does. So it's not unheard of, but it's something that we kind of had to build up evidence to be able to come come to that conclusion on. So we've seen this evolution in what scientists have learned about the potential for coronavirus to be shared or spread by aerosols. When you say hours, can you are we talking two hours here or are we talking four, five, six hours? I'm not sure of the exact time frame that has I'm not sure of the, the confidence interval or what that what they say that exact time frame is. But it's well beyond an hour. For example, there was a person who attended one, a family that attended one church service, and the person who sat in the pew two hours later ended up getting coronavirus, and it was likely because of viral particles that were in the air still at that point. So we are seeing multiple hours, but I'm not sure what the evidence show that that confidence interval is. On the last podcast, we talked about how Disney World was reopening and concerns doctors had over a theme park opening up in the middle of a pandemic. So what is it like there and how clean and how safe is it? Rick Menares, consumer issues reporter and analyst at Motley Fool. He was at Disney World this weekend. So Rick, how'd it go? I felt really safe. Um, and I realized that being at Disney World in Florida, where we're having 15, 12,000 cases a day now, um, is probably the dumbest thing one could do. But I definitely felt safer at Disney World. Um, I was at Animal Kingdom uh, twice on, on Friday and then on Sunday. And I was at the Magic Kingdom on Saturday that day. It officially opened. And I definitely felt safer there than I do at supermarkets, where people are wearing their masks as chin guards uh, and basically just huddling over each other to get to a can of beans. In, in Disney World, everything was, was – there was a temperature checks at the beginning. There's plexiglass everywhere, uh, separating – even within the ride vehicles now, there's plexiglass. Uh, people are respecting the social distancing. Uh, there's floor markers uh, basically telling people where to stand when they're in line so that they're six feet from another party. Um, so I definitely felt safe. And to me, I mean, I realize it's, it's – you're making a sacrifice going out there – and I know it's, it's, there's a stigma to going to Disney World in Florida. It's the kind of stuff that history is going to look at me as doing something ridiculous. But I felt very safe. I felt like everyone around me was taking the same precautions and just careful. Um, and just, you know, it's just escapism four months into a pandemic. Um, and obviously, it's not something that I think is going to be a hotbed of contagion. Uh, right now with the with the parks. Yeah, but how much fun is it when you're describing kind of the Disney's wonderful world of plexiglass? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's definitely different. And I mean, I, I don't think there's anyone there that would give anything to be, you know, without the plexiglass, without the mask, 
and obviously, more importantly, without the COVID-19 uh, out there. But, I mean, the rides are exactly the same. The nostalgia kicks in exactly the same. And you're wearing a mask, uh, so you know you're not infecting anyone, uh, and ideally no one's infecting you, and you're going through the process. You can ride Space Mountain and, and wear a mask, and it's, you're not losing your breath. Uh, it's still the same exciting roller coaster it's always been. Um, and I think that's a, a key element. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things that are not there, the fireworks, uh, the parades, uh, the character meet and greets that are just quintessential Disney World and Disneyland experiences. They're not coming any back anytime soon. But to go out and be able to walk around and get some good exercise. I mean, I walk three or four miles a day there, which is more than I'm doing around my house. So um, I do think that there's a trade-off there uh, that I think is fair. Um, and I don't mind the criticism. Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to get it. I mean, I was, I was really concerned posting photos, you know, with my family and friends, you know, on social media, knowing that they would let me have it. Why am I at Disney World? Obviously, I have to cover it because it's sort of what I do. But even if I didn't, I would have probably been there anyway. Uh, and I, don't, I do not regret it. Um, I think it is a, you know, a safe experience, um, definitely safer than a lot of retail experiences. And, and just other things I've had to do the last four months. Uh, just, you know, it's not an essential service, uh, but it's an essential escapism right now. And everybody was pretty good with the masks. Is there any area where you don't have to wear them? Because Twitter well, was roasting, can... like, these relaxation zones that apparently you can take them off, which yeah, doesn't seem I, super I, smart. I, I stayed far away from all those relaxation zones. But at, at the end of the day, I mean, I mean you, you can't take them off if you're at a restaurant and you're eating. If you're drinking, so if you're eating popcorn, you can take a hook your mask long enough to take a handful of popcorn into your mouth, then put the mask back on. There are cast members, Disney World cast members, telling people, hey, you know, a lot of people, you know, the, the, the mask slips beneath the nose, hey, pull it back up. Stuff that you don't see in other places, they're going beyond that. Yeah, but you um, know, Rick, but, but, but there, there is an area, though, Rick, where your analogy to, like, going to the supermarket uh, kind of falls down, and, and that is that nobody goes to a supermarket more than maybe you're in it maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes at, at most, and you you buy what you want to buy, and then you leave. How long were you at uh, Disney World? Um, in, inside an actual attraction, like inside a building with an attraction, I mean, every ride there, they have everything spaced out. I mean, I hadn't didn't have to wait more than 10, 15 minutes in any ride because it's all spaced out that way. Out in the open, yeah, I was there a couple hours, uh, but not any different than people just walking around the park and getting exercise that way. Yeah, but when, um, you, when you add up all the time you were in the different rides, how long would you say you were there? If, I'm, if I'm going to add an actual ride time and time at the park, I mean, I, I was there for just two or three hours each Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. An actual wait for line, uh, maybe about an hour or, or maybe two hours tops uh, to go on my four or five you know, key rides and then move on. It's Rick Menares, consumer issues reporter, analyst at Motley Fool. He was there at Disney World in Orlando this weekend. Rick, thanks. Kimberly Chavez Lopez Bird thought things were relatively low risk when she agreed to teach remote summer school classes for her students in a small Arizona school district. It was Mrs. Bird in a classroom with only two of her fellow teachers, and they were taking precautions. Well, all three teachers became infected with COVID-19, and unfortunately, Mrs. Bird was killed by the virus. Her death comes as her school district is debating about whether and how students and teachers can come back to classrooms in the fall. Pamela Gonzalez is the K-8 principal at the Hayden-Winkleman School District in Arizona, where Kimberly Bird taught uh, first grade. So, Pamela, with all this being said, uh, how does anyone propose bringing kids and teachers back to campus? At our school district, at the Hayden-Winkleman School District in Arizona, um, because of our experience this summer, it has really, um, you know, gives us some dire concerns when it comes to reopening in person in the fall. 
Um, also, with the number of cases in Arizona increasing, and even in our small counties and rural areas in Arizona. So what we have done is we have, um, you know, done surveys to our staff, to our families, and we are prepared to, as a result of that, and as a result of kind of the the direction of the state superintendent and the health experts, we are hoping to offer a virtual um, instruction in August for the first quarter, at least for the first nine weeks of school. And in preparation for that, we have worked on professional development, you know, teacher training on, on instruction in that platform because that's not what we're used to. Uh, we, you know, did um, out-of-school instruction from March to May, and we saw how that went and made some improvements and adjustments so that we can move forward and, and give the best possible um, you know, instruction that we can in August. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of school districts are trying to do, right? Because online learning is a, is a learning curve for a lot of people. What do you want people to know about how safe these three teachers were, were trying to be? And then how are the other two doing right now? Well, you know, what I would say about them being safe is that we did a two-week virtual summer school program in, in June. And, you know, I had 10 teachers working at my site for that summer school program. Um, the three teachers that we've been talking about, they taught in the same classroom and for reasons of supporting each other with this new type of instructional delivery. But while they were doing that, they were the only three in the classroom. They wore masks, they social distanced, they used hand sanitizer, washed their hands frequently, and so forth. And you know, it found its way to, to for first Miss Bird to become sick, and after four days of of the virtual, you know, instruction program, she became sick. She ended up in the hospital that weekend, and mm-hmm. um, on a ventilator the next day after being admitted. So our whole staff that was on campus, because we still have food service, to, you know, providing meals to the community, maintenance workers, administrative staff on campus. So we all got tested on that Monday, and the other two teachers became, you know, tested positive. So they, one of them is a breast cancer survivor, so we were really concerned, and she has She's on the way to being fully recovered. The other teacher, she um, was, you know, obviously in quarantine, had a difficult time with the virus, as we've seen so many in the country. But she tested positive again after her two and a half weeks at home because she was still having symptoms. So I think, the you know, the other day it was day 28 that she was still wow. in quarantine and experiencing symptoms. Ms. Gonzalez, I'm, I'm curious, as you know, I'm sure there's a great push coming from Washington to have schools open fully around the country this fall, in-person classes, not virtual ones. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think I share the the, you know, the desire to have our students back for in-person learning. I really do. A lot of my colleagues do, my superintendent, my board, 
even the parents in the community. However, we want that when it is safe, you know, for our students, for our staff, and and with the numbers in Arizona right now, particularly um, being a hot spot, as you can relate in California, and the cases increasing and not de- decreasing. You know, this morning I saw on the news that we have about 89% of our ICU beds that are being in that are in use right now in Arizona. I think it was 86% of all hospital beds were in use, and just bringing back those thousands of students into a school, you know, different schools around the state, and then adding that much more people out, and then going home to their families. And that's what, you know, we're really concerned about. So I don't understand the push when it comes to, you know, the information we're getting, the statistics we're seeing. I don't fully understand how that is being supported. Pamela Gonzalez, K-8 Principal, Hayden Winkleman Unified School District there in Arizona. Ms. Gonzalez, thanks for talking to us. Getting a job is hard enough no matter how old you are or what experience you have. Competition always fears. And it is especially hard to get a job or internship if there aren't any. This year's college graduates are going into a job market with very high unemployment and canceled internships. So what are they supposed to do? Yeah, how do you get hired when there's a hiring freeze, right? Yeah. Rick Cobb, executive vice president of the job placement firm Challenger Gray and Christmas, talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about the big challenges the new grads are facing. There's a, an additional challenge for somebody coming out of college now, and that's just their own personal experience. You know, this is a this is a generation that's very used to social media and online presence and navigating that that virtual world. And that seems like an advantage, but at the end of this process, no matter how it initiates, you have to have a conversation with somebody who wants to hire you. And that's more difficult now than it used to be, just in general. So what should they do if they're trying to, I I, I guess, they, they want to stay fresh, they want to get started, even at a time where it's going to be difficult? Well, let's look at the math. You know, if you have a large, if you have a significant unemployment population, now your competition is everybody out there who's looking for work just like you. But you don't have to replace, you don't have to change the unemployment number. You have to find work. And so the thing that is most effective in North America is to pursue the network part of the market. Really, about the studies have said anywhere from 60 to 80% of jobs obtained. Uh, come from some form of networking. If you're spending all of your time on the, the job aggregators and you know Glassdoor and LinkedIn and all of that, you're really just putting yourself in a pool with a thousand other people in competition. And the job on the other end is not hiring somebody. It's how do I get this list of a thousand people down to the 10 I'm going to talk to uh, or, or look at the resume and then pass them on to the next person who's going to actually have a conversation with three of them And even in that situation, there's no guarantee of hiring. So you're really looking for, how do I change the numbers? And you change the numbers by identifying who it is that you know and who your people you know who can introduce you or you can use their name. And and the critical part of that is, if I say to you, hey, Cisco, uh, who do you know? And you say, oh, great, I'm going to give you, um, just let me have your resume and I'll send it to a friend of mine. The problem with that is the relationship is between you and your friend. It's, I don't even enter, I'm not even part of it. I'm a poker chip in the game. 
So what I would really want to do instead is, Cisco, is it okay if I, when I'm out networking, are you comfortable with me using your name and then me using you as a reference or referencing you as somebody that we have in common when I'm pushing myself? Because no matter how well you know me, you're not going to know me as well as I know myself, and you can't change my answer if you don't have that information. So you have to be way more proactive, way more direct. Is there and, something, and, uh, yeah, well, I'm wondering, is there something to, uh, in, in doing that, you, you make those connections and, and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Uh, is there something to going out and taking maybe a low-wage job just to have something on the resume as you continue searching for something in your career field? Or is that a bad idea? Well, I'll, I'll back up one step from that. Your, your process that you're developing and trying to get really good at is getting as far in the hiring process as possible. So if somebody finally you get to a point where someone is willing to offer you a job, that's great. That means that you've done something correct. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to take it. And you may decide that you need to take it for whatever. I, everybody's situation is unique. Perhaps your parents have been laid off. You have, you know, you have all sorts of debt incurred, et cetera. So we can't speak to that. But really what you're trying to do is get good at getting as far in the process as possible. Because until someone says, this is the job, this is what it pays, this is what you do, this is where you'd sit or how you do your job, you have no leverage. You can't turn down something that hasn't been offered. So I guess my answer is maybe not take the job, but certainly getting offers and turning them down is way better than getting nothing. And it's got nothing to do with what you want. It's about what they want. So you have to put your own agenda aside in general uh, and just and, and practice that skill. Yeah, thick skin for a while, for sure. All right, so you're mad, you're upset, you're stressed, you're anxious over, over this whole thing. Who can you partly blame? How about cavemen? More specifically, Neanderthals. Uh-huh. A new study finds a stretch of DNA inherited from Neanderthals about 60,000 years ago may increase the risk of getting seriously ill from COVID-19. Scientists don't yet know why this particular segment increases the risk of severe illness. Not everyone, though, has this segment. Most Neanderthal genes turned out to be harmful to modern humans. They may have been a burden on people's health or made it harder to have children. As a result, Neanderthal genes became rarer and many disappeared from our gene pool. So we wiped them out, and this is their revenge. Yeah, but you know, I I have neighbors who I know are Neanderthal. <laughs> I'm absolutely. He's done positive. careful study. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I'm. I don't have to see their DNA. I mean, I just know it. So I think they're among us. The more you know. Listen to <laughs> us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and do stay well. Oh.